Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And this month, we're so delighted to be bringing you Jane, Dr. Jane Trace as our advocate for women aging. And she's joining us from across the pond in Brighton, England. So welcome, Jane. Thank you. Um, so Jane had a 35-year career as a teacher and head teacher in state schools in England, and has also been a consultant, a leadership coach, and a diversity trainer. And then in her mid-60s, Jane began transforming herself, as she says, into someone else. She became a scholar of gender studies, earning a master's in philosophy, and at age 69, a PhD in gender studies at the University of Sussex. And for the past 20 years, Jane's mission has been to tell the stories that were never told about the lives of older lesbian women. Her recent book, now in its fourth printing, is about the lives, is, I'm sorry, is Now You See Me, Lesbian Life Stories. And I wanted to show this book. Now, Jane describes herself as, quote, an old historian who is putting my generation back on the map through her speaking and writing. So thanks to another advocate, Peg Crickshank, episode number 127, for referring us to Dr. Jane Trace. So welcome. Welcome, Jane. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a real, real pleasure to be here. You know, we, we do want to focus our conversation on your work over the past 20 years for sure. But what would you like our listeners to know about your former life before the life in gender studies? I suppose it's only fair to explain why it was that I got to a point where I felt I got to completely reinvent myself. Um, what you need to know about my former life is that it was really quite staid and quite predictable. And I was a teacher all my career without a break. Um, and I was in the same um, relationship uh, with the same person for all that time as well. And I had a loving family and I lived in the same place for most of that time. So it was a very, um, it wasn't uneventful, but it, there wasn't a lot of story. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose now I look back on it, I can see what happened. What happened was that all the bad, almost all the bad things that have happened to me in my life all happened at the same time <laughs> um, around well, over a period of three or four years. Mm -hmm. uh, and all the things that, that made me know who I was. So first of all, I had cancer, which I think always shifts your view of yourself. Then what happened next? My father died. Then in short order, I retired from that lifelong career, which had really been part of my identity. I moved from one end of the country to another and left behind everything I knew. And then my 40-year relationship broke up, all in a very short space of time. And basically, I just went down a big dark hole. And when I came out of it, I didn't have any idea who I was. I was on my own for the first time in my life, and everything that had given me a sense of who I was had disappeared. Um, and it was a hard time, but I knew that I'd got to just, you know, you don't have any choice, do you? You go forward. And one of the first things I did, I remember, was I thought, well, I will, I will go back to university. I will study again, and that will open up the world and give me something to think about. And indeed, it proved to be so. It was one of the best things I have ever done. And did you go into gender studies right away when you went back to, to college? Yes, um, but that was really because I wanted to do something that I hadn't ever done before. I didn't want any connection with, with any kind of studies I'd done before. And uh, I'd done English and history and education mm -hmm. and 
blah, blah. And so I looked and looked to see what I could find within universities that were near to where I then lived. Mm-hmm. And I did live in a very remote spot, so it, there wasn't a lot of choice. Um, and then I just stumbled across this gender studies master's degree at the University of Birmingham. Um, and I have to say, I was so innocent. It was it was half a century since I'd been an undergraduate, <laughs> literally half a century. And um, everything had happened in between. Academia was entirely unrecognisable to me. And I had no idea that gender studies was simply the, the new name for women's studies, really, at that point. I thought I was going to be studying this all these new lovely ideas, you know, interesting ideas about gender and sex and which didn't really come into it it was a women's studies course in a way but it was very very well taught by a a large team of of wonderful women from different um, disciplines at the University of Birmingham and it turned out to be a really good uh, course for somebody who was coming in from the wilderness and knew nothing Uh, my, my supervisor who was young enough to be my granddaughter, actually. Um, when we got over being frightened of each other, she was excellent and she guided me and she taught me the words. Um, and by the time I got to the end of that year, uh, I had, well, I decided two things. I decided that although we'd been doing women's studies all year, I'd hardly met any lesbians and I'd certainly never seen any old women in the story. Uh, so I decided that older lesbians were the most invisible kind of people. <clears throat> and since I was one, I found that very annoying. And <laughs> yes. so I decided to write my little master's dissertation about the invis- cultural invisibility of older lesbians. And having written it, I'm totally convinced myself. And having got so enthusiastic about studying that I wanted to do a PhD then, um, I went on to eventually to do that, as you said. I did it at the University of Sussex, uh, which is where I now live. And um, I decided my PhD subject should be to make those old lesbians visible. And that's how it all began, really. So I, I, I understand. Why do you think it's important for, for others to know about older lesbians? Well, I think it's important for us to know the variety of people's experience Um, And I think, too, that in recent years, when the whole aspect of sexuality has become so much more able to be talked about, so Mm -hmm. much more visible, if you like, that this is a part of the LGBTQ community, which isn't actually very visible. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are two reasons for that. And one of them is that, for, for historical reasons, a lot of those women, particularly in my generation and older, have hidden themselves out of fear and are still hiding. Um, but I think the other reason is that I decided, after I'd done all the research, I decided that one of the things that's making this particular group of women so invisible is that there's a place where sexism and ageism and homophobia Mm-hmm. intersect mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. the Bermuda Triangle you know if you're if you're invisibilized because you're old and invisibilized and, and, and underrated because you're a woman um, and you've been hiding because you're a lesbian then you're actually gone gone culturally yeah. invisible there was, there was a piece of yours that I read Jane that was about uh, uh, language mm. and how how the word lesbian if I understood it correctly, how the word lesbian had disappeared from the um, lexicon and, and that 
it was replaced by other words. Mm -hmm. And so, so I'm just curious about your take on that. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that right? That's interesting because it's actually become part of another debate as well. There's a, an American scholar, isn't there, Bonnie Morris, I think, who has actually written a book called The Disappearing L, mm -hmm. meaning that in LGBT, actually, nobody can see the lesbians anymore. And I think I, I would come at it from a slightly different angle, simply because my first training was in English language. Um, and I know that language is dynamic and words go in and out of fashion. Um, and I know that young women... Um, who are in same-sex relationships would not use that word of themselves, although they are, to old people like me, that's exactly what they are. So I think there are fashions in language, and I think we're on dangerous ground at the moment because, of course, the idea of a lesbian, particularly an old lesbian who might be a lesbian feminist of the old kind, has become entangled in the debate about trans identity as well, mm -hmm. and people have taken sides and, and lesbian has got a whole lot of very negative meanings within that discourse mm. as well. So it's quite it's quite difficult, and you've just got to be flexible. I used the word in my own research and writing because of the generations of the women I was talking to and because I thought that was probably the word they would recognise um, to indicate, you know, female same-sex relationships. But, um, in fact, the very eldest of them thought it was quite a rude word. Um, oh. and didn't like it very much and said they would describe themselves as as gay women or homosexuals oh. because they were very old. And so it's and so much of it is about the dynamism of the English language, really. Mm -hmm. right. interesting. Yeah. So tell us about Now You See Me. I, I just want to say that I read your book with, I just couldn't put it down. The stories are so moving and so illuminating and well, it, I, I love it. I, I love that I did it. And I, it was a sort of byproduct, really, of having done that degree. Because for the degree, I did a lot of research with all the old women I could find, women who were over 60 at that point, so women who were born before 1950, basically. And I managed to reach an enormous number of them because it turned, well, because I'm old myself and a lesbian and I've been around for a long time, but also because they turned out to really, really, really want to tell their stories. Uh, they didn't want to be personally identified or anything like that, but they really wanted somebody to do it. And in the end, I ended up contacting nearly 400 women, which most of that was quantitative research, was a survey that I did with lots of questions partly because this invisibility thing meant that I wasn't feeling that my topic was being terribly um, seriously taken within the academy. Uh -huh. I certainly never got any funding. Um, and people were like, what? So um, I thought, well, you know, quantitative results, that's what persuades people. And I'm not really a quantitative person. And I do find sums very difficult. But I did get lots and lots of percentages that I could put into my, my dissertation. However, I backed it up with a lot of life history interviewing mm -hmm. because I felt that, you know, if you say 52% of old women who identify as lesbians have actually been heterosexually married, it doesn't tell you anything about why that is so or why it's sort of almost exactly half of them or what it was like for them being married. So I wanted to talk to people about their actual stories and experiences so that I could put flesh on the bones of those of those statistics 
And of course, that was the bit I really loved. Mm-hmm. I love it is such a privilege to sit down with somebody and let them talk to you. Sometimes for the first time, actually, that was the most moving part about their lives and about how it's been for them to be that person. And when I had written my doctoral dissertation, I was dissatisfied with the fact that I'd had to chop those stories up Mm -hmm. into little bits to be the illustrations in my thesis. And when I wrote the book afterwards that was was my thesis in disguise, the academic book, again, it was using people's quotations and experiences in small bits to illustrate the points I was making. And I thought these stories need to be told whole. Um, And I also felt that I'd been given so much help by this older lesbian community. I'd never have got the research done if people hadn't been so generous Mm -hmm. with their time and their stories. I thought I could give them back their stories in a a sort of dignified and permanent form and say, look, Mm -hmm. I I have done what I said. I've made you visible. And so I chose 20 of them and I worked with them. Um, I mean, I've actually got 50 or 60 or probably more now. I could do another mm. book, but cho- I chose them for variety and we worked together. And as you've seen, Catherine, if you've read it, they are mm-hmm. um, told in the first person. And it was very interesting because they had to be edited down from thousands of words <laughs> so that I could get them all in the book. And I wanted to make them readable as text but at the same time not make them all sound the same so that I can yeah. try to retain some sort of um, character of how the people spoke. And that was lovely. I really enjoyed that work and I've gone on to do it in other in other contexts since. But that that's how uh, Now You See Me came about. Yeah. I was wondering how you, um, how you, or how those eight themes emerged. There's, you, you've, you've organized the book into the stories are in eight, across eight different uh, themes. How, how did that come about? They were the themes that emerged while I was doing the re- original research. I, it was very much, um, you know, res- it was that way round research. What do you call it? Inductive research, I think, where you, you don't set out to prove anything, but you find out what comes from the research. And it fell eventually into those sort of categories. I think probably around seven originally, but I think I put another one in when I wrote this book. Um, And they were the sort of main themes that came out um, of of all the stories. Can you, um, I'd love to have you talk about one or two of the themes and um, maybe a story that illustrates that theme. Yeah, Um, that'd be interesting. Well, I think the first thing I, I would pick out is is the idea of similarity and difference, because of course I just set up this category, haven't I? I'd said, oh, I want to talk about, it. and then of course once you set up a category and you start to interrogate it, you it sort of fritters away. <laughs> what what is an old lesbian? Because actually, of course, these people that I collected, they were as diverse as all the rest of the world put together. You know, some of them were rich, some of them were poor. Because they were over 60, didn't mean they were all the same age. Some of them were nearly 100. They were two or three generations. Um, They were educated and not educated. They were able-bodied and not able-bodied. Some were white, some were women of colour. You know, they they were as varied as could be. And there was a point at which I thought, "I, I don't know what I'm studying. But what I found was that there were things that linked them together. 
And that was one of the main main sort of themes, I think, of, of what I was doing. But although they are so diverse, they have that in common, which makes them feel like family and made these women who some of them were so different from me and their mm-hmm. experience of life was so different from mine. And yet they felt, they knew in their hearts that we had something in common that would make them trust me and would make them sit down with me and tell me all sorts of things that they hadn't told other people because of that thing we had in common. And the thing we had in common, I think, was was that, if I use the word oppression, it's a bit overdramatic, isn't it? But it, no. it, it has been, you know, that thing which drove most of us into the closet most of our lives. Um, and what I began to realise was actually that there's a unique double um, difficulty because in my generation and, and, and probably yours and before, we were oppressed enough as women. Um, sure. yeah, when I look back, what made life as a young lesbian difficult? Well, quite a lot of things are actually making life difficult for all women. Mm-hmm. Like in, in this country, for instance, you couldn't sign a higher purchase agreement in your own name. So if you chose to settle down with another woman rather than a man, you couldn't even get your furniture on the higher purchase. Uh, you know, there were lots of things. You couldn't get a mortgage. Uh, so there were lots of things like that going on. And, and in the period that I was studying most, all that legislation which gave women equal rights, certainly in the UK, was still ahead because it, it didn't happen until the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. So there was that that sort of double whammy of, of, of a dual oppression. And that, that knowledge that you had to be careful because the punishments... Um, yes certainly in the second half of the 20th century, were very, very great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, could not only physical and sexual violence, which women are always, you know, vulnerable to, but losing your job, which if you didn't have a male breadwinner in the house was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and worst of all, probably, for some of the women it happened to, having your children taken away. Because if you're a lesbian, you're unfit mother and you lost custody of your own kids. So the reasons for being secret and for bonding together were very were very real, uh, and I feel that certainly in the older generations, I would say that I found that bond was still strong. So that's you know, one theme: that whole yeah, thing about visibility yeah. and invisibility right. and recognizing each other. Um, I'm sorry, I mean uh, diversity and um, and similarity and recognizing mm-hmm. each other. I think is a theme, uh, and the visibility and visibility thing is the other theme that I would pick out. Yeah, um, I, I was uh, really struck by the. The uh, innocence and ignorance. Uh-huh. Yes. The, yes, well, it was. <laughs> and the stories, the, the stories of the, the two women and mm-hmm. in that category were, you just wanted to hug them. I mean, it was just, oh. <laughs> well, that, that was very, that was a very much a recurring theme, the innocence and ignorance, because, of course, in the bringing up of girls, especially in the 20th century, those two things were exactly the same. We wanted our girls to be innocent of these wicked thoughts. Um, and I don't know whether you're aware, but actually in, in England in the 1920s, there was an attempt in Parliament to, uh, to criminalise uh, lesbian sex as, as male sex was, was already criminalised. And it was thrown out when it got to the House of Lords because one of the Lords made a passionate speech in which he explained that should they pass this law, lots of innocent girls would find out about the existence 
of lesbianism, and that would never do. <laughs> and it was much better to be quiet about it all, because it's such a great evil that if we passed a law, then this terrible, terrible, sinful wickedness in the world would, would be found. And they might do it if they found out about it. This, this is what makes me laugh so much. And the idea that he, he, he feared that women would actually, you know, young women would actually quite like to do it. Uh, anyway, it never got turned into a law, um, but it was always hidden. And you're right, there are some lovely stories in the book about um, a, a girl who, for instance, she and her friends came across the word lesbian. They didn't know what it meant, but they knew it was naughty. So at school, they looked it up in a dictionary. They never found it because they couldn't spell it. Um, <laughs> they were spelling it wrong and they never found it. And there were lots of other examples of girls who were just never told <clears throat> that um, same-sex relationships were possible. And it's all the more extraordinary then that they managed, all of them, in the end, to find one. Yes, uh, yes. There were a lot of women in my generation particularly, and I was born in 1945, so um, that, that post-war generation that came of age in the 60s and 70s uh, didn't really find out about the existence of those possibilities until they joined the women's movement. Oh. And for huge numbers of, of the women that I studied, um, lesbianism and feminism were almost unable to be detangled. They mm. were one, you know, they, they were all part mm. of that same moment of growth. Um, were you involved in the women's movement? I wasn't actually, not in any way except intellectually. I think I was a little bit old. I don't know. I, I mean, I did believe in it all. I just didn't. I, I led a very, um, until recently, I led a very, a very boring life. Really. Well, and I, wasn't, I wasn't very brave and I wasn't very active in, in politics. And that was partly because I was in the closet. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Well, so tell us about recently then. What, what's uh, the exciting and brave things that you're involved in? Well, I feel that the work I'm, I, the studying and the research and the publication of all those that work that we've been talking about um, was uh, I was completely out while I was doing that and have been ever since I suppose since I stopped work really but I was coming out before that um, and so it's led to so many exciting things I think that's what I would say for instance um, because lots of people have read this book now I get all kinds of wonderful contacts from all sorts of people who get in touch with me and say, oh, we've read this book and we think this and that. And one day um, I was sitting here at this same computer that I'm sitting at now and an email dropped into my box which said, um, I've read that you have done some work with older lesbians and I wonder if you can help an older lesbian that I'm working with at the moment. And the woman who was writing to me was a volunteer with um, a support group for women refugees who are claiming asylum in the UK on the grounds of their sexual orientation, mm -hmm. on the grounds that if they go back, for instance, to Nigeria, now that their families know they're a lesbian, they will be killed. Um, and they have to prove, this is a bizarre and humiliating experience, they have to prove to the government their sexuality. Now, I don't know how anybody does that, yeah. anyway, <laughs> um, but this is required. And so... This woman was asking, she said, we've got this particular woman that we're helping and she's um, been turned down twice now by the government who do not believe her. They say, you're lying to us that you are a lesbian. Um, and we don't know how to help her further. She wants to make another claim 
but she's so unlike the other women we've helped because most of them are middle-aged or young and this woman is old um, and the foreign office don't believe I, obviously you know the foreign office got a picture in the head of a lesbian and it's probably something mildly pornographic and certainly sexy and actually there's this african great-grandmother standing in front of them um and she's been married she's had an in, married twice she's had endless children she's got grandchildren she didn't she says she didn't have her first lesbian relationship till she was in the middle age and so on and so on and i'm saying but these are common themes. You know, this is a story I've heard so many times. Right. And they said, will you write for her? And I discovered that she was, in fact, exactly my age. We were then, I think, 74 or something. And, um, well, I've, it changed my life. I had no idea the experience that these people go through. Oh. I mean, refugees generally and people claiming asylum in our country I, I can't say it makes me proud to be British the way they're treated. I don't know what it's like in the States. But for people who are claiming that asylum on the grounds of either sexual orientation or gender identity, it is a hideous experience. And so that's drawn me on to write my next book. It wasn't about old women as such. It was about um, the life stories of some of the uh, lesbian asylum seekers that I've met through. I, I volunteer with this group now. And the old woman who was my introduction to it is now very dear because it did take us two or three more years, but we actually got her refugee status and she is now safe. Um, and we're both now 76. So, yeah, it took a while. Um, but that, that's been the work. It leads itself. It leads itself on. <laughs> And it led me to to the refugees, and no doubt it will lead me off lead me off in another direction. But it's all about people whose stories don't get heard yeah. being heard. That that's what it's about. Yes. Is that book out now? Is that available? Yes, it is. It came out earlier this year. It's called um, It's called Free to Be Me. I've got a copy of it. Oh no, I've got so many books here. That might be it. Yes, that's it. Um, and it's, again, it's very similar format to the previous one in that it is stories told in the first person um, by people. It was very difficult because I just about got the interviews done when coronavirus hit and oh. we wrote that book in lockdown. It kept us all going. <laughs> we had to write it on telephones and computers and yeah. it was very, very difficult. But, um, yeah, we got it out and we're selling it in aid of the cause. Nice. Gail, do you have a... Comment, question? I'm so um, enthralled with this story, Jane. Thank you so much for sharing it. And um, and so the, the when you wrote Now You See Me, so those 20 stories, yeah. the, the women then were willing to identify themselves? No, 80% of the women in that book at that time used false names. Okay. Now, I have to say... I realized later that being in the book was part of their journey. And we did a lot of readings and, and events um, when the book was pub first published. And some of the women traveled around with me doing that, reading out from their own stories. So that was a kind of coming out as well. And there was one woman who in the book is called Brenda, who actually during one of these events just ripped off her name badge and said, oh, sod it. I'm not Brenda. My real name, my real name's Barbara. <laughs> 
So that everybody's on a journey. So probably not 80% of them would use false names now, but quite a few of them did. And have we got time for me to tell you a little story about one of them? Sure, sure. Um, yes. the, the last story in the book is actually about two women. And they've been together so long and their conversations are so entwined that I couldn't pick them apart. And I actually presented them in that last chapter as, as two with two voices, like a little play. Um, and I have known those women for 25 years and their story is wonderful uh, because they've overcome so much together and they're still together. They've been together about 50 years now. And um, they met as teenagers. The picture on the front of the book is actually them as teenagers. Um, and they're still together. So that was in the 1950s. So I just wanted their story for my book. But they were probably the most secretive and the most hidden of all the friends I've ever had. And they were very upset because they said, we'd really like to help you, Jane, uh, but we can't do it. They could just not get that story out of their mouth because they had spent 50 years for very good reason. And they'd had a very hard life um, keeping it secret. And the book was nearly finished when I met them one day. Um, that was in Manchester too. We met for a coffee and they were getting on towards 80 by then. And I said, as you say to your older friends, you know, how are you? Are you all right? Um, and they said, well, yes, we're all right. We're a bit stressed, actually. Um, but it, think everything will be OK. So because immediately I thought, oh, my God, one of them's ill or something. So I said, tell me, tell me. And they said, no, sit down and we'll tell you. So then I was really concerned. And then they said, we've decided to get married. Oh, my goodness. And I went, what? But don't you know that if you get married, you, um, you know, your name goes up on a notice at the registry office and it's all public. And they said, yes, we've talked about it. and We've decided that it's time. And they, I went to their wedding, which was one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever been at. Um, and it was on the something like 45th anniversary of the day they moved in together or something. Um, and when it was over, they said to me, so when can we do the interview? Oh. Because they were coming out, they were going to do it properly. So just in time, we have this wonderful story to end the book. And it is a really lovely story. Wow. <laughs> Well, it's a lovely story to end our conversation also. And uh, we thank you, Jane, so much. This is, um, I just want to know, I know that you're you're volunteering with the uh, Lesbian Immigrant Group. Are you, is there another book in the works or are you? Ah, uh, well, what we haven't talked about at all because it isn't really relevant to this conversation is that uh, I have another life as a writer and together with my ex-partner, well, when we were together, we always used to write. Mm -hmm. We wrote historical fiction. Um, and now that we're friends again, which has taken a little while, um, we've just written another one. So I've got a, we've got a historical novel coming out this week and we're busy launching it. Um, oh. <laughs> in fact, this is the cover. Aha, uh -huh. Liberty. Yeah. Liberty. We're, um, Do we're you write under a different name? Yes, we write under the name of Jay Tavener. And at the moment, we don't have a publisher or a distributor in the United States, but we are going to look for one. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. This has been a, just a delightful, wonderful conversation, and we appreciate it. Thank it's you. Been, it's been so lovely to talk to you both. Thank, thank you, you so much.